Good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you on this Father's Day, and as we open our Bibles this morning to the first psalm, I just want to pause and just say to all of our men, thank you so much for what you provide in your home and what you provide in this church and what you provide in this country. You know, we live in a time in our <clears throat> culture where uh, it's, it's uh, daunting at times uh, to fulfill the role of man and father. Uh, in a culture that seems to be very intent on denigrating that role. And I want you to know that at this church, we are thankful for the men, for their godliness, for their leadership, for their character, for their integrity, for their participation, for those things that God has called them to do and to which they have stepped up willingly and sacrificially. And I would say to you, if you are sitting next to a man who is your brother, your father, your uncle, your grandfather, your son, uh, your grandson, or your grandfather, uh, and he is a regularly, regular part of your life, he is faithful in worship, he is doing his best before God to provide leadership and, and unconditional love, God has blessed you in an incredible way. Do not buy into the world's philosophy that says that um, men are inconsequential or that they are beasts or that they are toxic or all the other lies that are being spread. In fact, the men that I know are godly men who are doing their best and pursuing God in the frail way that all of us do, in the imperfect way that all of us do. But they're trying and they're working hard and they have integrity. And that is something worthy of, of recognition and worthy of praise as they seek God. And so I hope you'll take time today to thank God and to thank the men in your life that are doing godly things and, uh, and express your appreciation to them, not only today, but other times as well. And, you know, sometimes we come to church. I, I remember this when I was growing up. On Mother's Day, it was all, moms are wonderful, moms are wonderful. And then we would come on Father's Day, and it was, you guys are a bunch of lazy dogs. And, and I don't know what there was about our church culture that was kind of like, man, we're going to really nail the dads today. I, I think dads need encouraged, and so I hope you'll do that today and, uh, and, and be part of that. Some, some of you don't have dads, but you've got guys that have been like dads in your life. And uh, I, uh, for the last uh, uh, 35 year, or 30, 32 years, I uh, used to have a guy I would call, and I lost my dad at a very young age, and so I've not had a dad to call on Father's Day, but I had a guy that was very much like that for me. And uh, he's in heaven for the first Father's Day this year. But I woke up this morning thinking about him. And, you know, sometimes God puts men in your life that, that uh, may not be your uh, bio or adoptive dad, but uh, they've had a good influence. So remember them today as well. As we look at Psalm chapter 1, it speaks of a man. But I want to make sure we understand up front, this is speaking of man in the human sense. It's speaking of humanity. It's speaking of our nature uh, as, as created in the image of God, both men and women. And uh, we are in what is called a wisdom psalm today. Now, when Pastor Ben first started talking about going through some of the psalms during uh, the summertime, I said, by chance, are you wanting us to address Psalm 1? And he said, yeah, that's one of them. And I said, I raised my hand and I said, I volunteer for that one. 
I, I love this passage. Uh, one of the reasons I love it is because it's one of the very first passages that my parents had me memorize as uh, a kid who wasn't even a man yet. I think I was 10 or 12 years old when I memorized this passage. In those days, pretty much everybody used the King James Version, and so I memorized it in the King James, and you start off with it, rather than saying blessed, you say blessed. I don't know why when you're speaking King James, you have to uh, put both symbols in the word blessed, but blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the God understandeth in the way of sinners, or sinners in the sea that's scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night, should be like tree. I can do it, right? Because I memorized it when I was a little kid. And you know, the wonderful thing about memorizing scripture at an early age is that God just lets it take root in your heart. And uh, you could rip a lot of things out of my life and my psyche, but the, these passages of Scripture are deep in there. In fact, uh, Bob, uh, Bob Williamson and I were in um, Uganda and uh, South Africa and India uh, during the month of uh, March. And uh, the, one of the people that we were with had this, this uh, both annoying and amusing habit of waiting until the last minute to let us know when she wanted us to, to teach or preach. And uh, so there was multiple times we'd be driving into this village in Uganda. We would look out and there'd be several thousand, thousand, several hundred people waiting underneath a tree or in a church or whatever. And they'd been meeting for an hour or so. Uh, you know, they getting singing out of the way and so forth as we were going from village to village. And, uh, and we'd drive in and she'd look over and say, okay, Dan, you're preaching this sermon. And boom, that was, I mean, she didn't tell me the night before. She didn't say, I didn't know where we were going. I didn't know who we were talking to. Dan, you're preaching this one. So now I try to act really cool when that happens because, you know, I am a man of God, right? And I'm supposed to always be prepared to preach the word. Give me your hat and I'll drop the hat. You know, you know, I'm ready. I drop, he preached the drop of the hat, you know, trying to, but you know, it freaked me out a little bit. Not going to lie. You get three minutes notice that you're going to walk right in and preach. So this is what I pulled out though. I pulled out Psalm 1. Because I'm going to tell you, this passage has meat for every generation, every culture, every people group. It is real for us today. So we're looking at this uh, from a wisdom perspective as we study the series of Psalms over the course of the summer. And as we look at this, I, I, I want you to understand that to me, you know, it is the very first Psalms. Uh, Psalm, it does set up the rest of the book because in, in setting the tone, you know, we're introduced to this cautionary tale in which God says, look, look, you can choose the way of wisdom or you can choose the way of foolishness. And then also he's saying, you can choose the way of salvation and you can choose the way of damnation. He is, he is basically saying this, I am setting you up for success, but you are going to have to take advantage of what I've given you. And he begins with this wisdom that says, there's two paths you can take. There are two outcomes that lie before you. There are two mindsets that you can develop. There are two value systems that you can, that you can uh, navigate your life with. But you better pay attention because you do need to choose. You do need to be wise. I've given you a mind, I've given you an opportunity, I've given you everything that you need to be blessed by me. And that is the theme right here, choosing with wisdom to be blessed by God. So as we, as we set this up, and I think it's really, really important because so many people live thoughtless lives. They, they, they live in the moment to the extent that they never scrape below that. And, and think of the whys and the consequences. You know, I, I 
spent some time Wednesday night with my, my small group, and I, I just love those kids. They're so ornery and so rowdy and drive me nuts, and I want to be with them every chance I can because of that. But, uh, so, and, you know, the first 20 minutes of our, our time together was just chaos. They were just, it was chaos. And, and, and finally I said, all right, everybody be quiet. You're going to give me 50 minutes, and we're going to get serious here. And, and, and finally they listened. And, and here's, here's what we did. We start scraping away at our tendency to live in the moment, to not really think of, of why did God do it this way? What are the implications of what I really believe? How can I believe anything at all? And what are the consequences of just ignoring truth? How do I find truth? How do I pursue truth? These are important questions. And one of the reasons I love working with college-age students is because this is the first age time that it really dawns on you. You know when you're six or you're seven, the, the, the big questions in life are, do I choose the orange-colored popsicle or the purple one? You know, that's, it's not that big of a deal. But by the time you are at this age where you're getting ready to go out on your own, you're going to be in a dorm setting, you're joining the military, you're getting your first job, you're buying you know, your first car, you're getting an apartment, you better better understand what truth is. You better understand what values are. You better understand that you have consequences for how you make decisions because you're not here by accident. God has a plan and there's a set of policies and rules and principles that he has put in place for our protection and we violate them at our risk. And so these are important things. And if you don't get anything else out of this message this morning, I want you to get this. What you do with truth will determine what God does with you. What you do with truth will determine what God does with you. You can't ignore truth and expect there not to be consequences. And conversely, if you pursue truth, there are good consequences to that as well. And that is the essence of this first chapter. What you do with truth will determine what God does with you. And by the way, what is truth? Well, truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ, and it is found in the power of the Word of God. The Word of God is truth. This is God himself is truth, and he reveals it to us through Jesus, and he reveals it to us through his Word. So it could justly be said as well, what you do with the Bible will determine what God does with you. If you ignore it, if you discount it, if you twist it, if you try to manipulate it, if you try to develop your own system around it, whatever, however you engage with real, objective truth, it will have consequences in your life. And it will be big, it will be significant, and it is even eternal. So with that in mind, we start off with the Bible in this wisdom psalm saying this. Look, there are two ways. And on those two ways are two different men. And those two different men will have two different outcomes. So pay attention at the very beginning with wisdom. Choose with wisdom. So I'm going to look at these two men. The first man, the one we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at, is the man who would be blessed by God. The man who would be blessed by God. Now, I think this is really important because the bottom line is many of us have such a messed up view of God. This is a great truth for us. Do you understand that God is not looking for a way to mess you up? God is not looking for a way to slap you around. God is not looking for a way to get even with you. It is God's desire to bless you. 
We are constantly being told by Satan that we should think thoughts that are not worthy of God. And if you don't get this fundamental truth, you're not thinking worthy of God. The fact of the matter is, God wants to bless you. He wanted to bless you when he created you. He wanted to bless you when he put all this in place. He designed everything for our blessing, for our good, for our benefit. We keep messing it up. And the fact is this, if we miss the blessing, it's nobody's fault but our own. We're the ones who are choosing to ignore truth, to ignore God. And when we have a distorted, twisted view of God, we miss that great truth. And I got to tell you that even a lot of Christians have a messed up view of who God is and what he's all about. I lived under this bondage for way too long. It's Father's Day, so let's be real about that. You know, sometimes our problem is we see that we have daddy issues. We see the mistakes that our dads made, and we superimpose them upon our heavenly Father. And we've got it backwards. We've got it backwards. But what we do is we think because maybe, maybe dad was a little rough, maybe dad was a little harsh, because dad is often the disciplinarian in our homes, and because of this, we start projecting our dads onto God, and that's not the way to do that. And it's going to be an issue. I loved my dad. My dad was a good guy. I didn't know him that well because I, he died by the time I became an adult and, and so forth. But the dad I knew, he took care of me. He made sure I was in church. He loved God. He got saved at a late life. So he struggled working out his faith with consistency and integrity. But then again, so do I. <laughs> so do I. You know. So my, my dad had a little bit of a temper. No, no, that was an understatement. My dad had a raging temper. Um, you know, my, my, my dad would sometimes say and do things that were outside of his spiritual nature, and as a result, he would have to apologize for it. No, my dad was a, was was a was was a, a guy who was very very human and very very frail. Uh, at the same time, he was the authority in my home. He was the authority in my life. He was the boss. He was he was that that overpowering. Uh, uh, individual in my life. If you had a strong dad in your home, perhaps that is. If you didn't have a dad at all, there may be other issues as well in your life. You understand? Because God set up the family in, in a way to kind of give us some semblance of order and so forth. But I want you to understand this. God is not looking for you to mess up. God is not looking to ground you on his report card every time you make a B. God is, God is not going to take you to the woodshed simply because he's having a bad day. Will God discipline us? Oh, yeah. Does God want his best for us? Absolutely. Does God have a system that he wants us to follow for our good and which will ultimately glorify him? Yes, all of those things are true, but he does it with a heart that begins with this, man, I want to bless you. I want you to know the best that I created until man messed it up. I want you to know joy, and I want you to know significance, and I want you to know peace, and I want you to know happiness, I want you to know fulfillment, I want you to know accomplishment, I want you to know creativity, I want you to know all of these good things that exist out here, and I'm going to do my best to show you that path, and if you'll follow that path, blessings will follow. We ought not get upset with God when we choose to live outside of his path and still demand the blessings that come with the other path. And that's one of the stupid things that we do. We always are wanting to get mad at God. We're looking for an excuse. Well, I'll tell you what, if God didn't do this, then I'm not going to follow him. Or if God's like this, I don't want to. And we make these big grandiose statements about God demanding that he follow our expectations when the real blessings that come with knowing our Heavenly Father come when we follow his expectations. 
And he doesn't do that because he's angry with us. He does it because he loves us. He does that because he's protecting us. He's doing it because he wants to bless us. The very first time that God's addressing mankind, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the scripture said, and this is the first time we see the word blessed used in the scripture, he said, and God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve. God blessed them. That was the very first chapter of the very first book of the story of our existence. It was only after we started thinking thoughts that are unworthy of God that we see a change. And it was in chapter 3, after Eve had eaten of the fruit, given it to Adam, and Adam had eaten of the fruit, after Satan had done his diabolical best, to get us to challenge and question God and ignore his authority in our lives, it's then that we see for the first time the word cursed used in regard to God's creation. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, we see three curses that took place. First thing he did was he cursed the serpent. That one who said to Eve, say, why don't you come over here and see what I have to offer? It was the one who, in his mysterious way, and his ability to communicate, however that took place at that time, convinced Eve that you couldn't trust God, that God was lying to her, and that he was in fact holding good things back from her. And in that moment, the consequences fell deep on creation. So as we see there, he cursed, he cursed the serpent. He said, you're going to slither on the ground. You're going to, you're going to, you're, and he's speaking of Satan as well. He said, you know, you're going to uh, bruise my heel, but let me tell you this, you're going to crush your head. It's going to be over for you, and this will be final. And, and so the serpent was cursed, and then Eve was cursed. And let's make no mistake, Eve was culpable for her sin and was held accountable for it. And she sinned first, and in that first sin, he said, you know what, Eve, you're going to have pain in childbirth. You're going to have pain. You're going to have death. You're going to have all the consequences of the sin. And so that was, he cursed Eve. And then, and he said, and Adam, don't be get smug. And, and, and don't do this finger pointing thing that you want to do. He said, you're cursed as well. You're going to work. You're going to sweat. You're going to have pain. And you're all going to die. These are the consequences of choosing the wrong path. Now, here's the thing. God warned them. God gave them opportunity to choose the right path. Was it wisdom that made them choose the other path? No, it was foolishness. And inasmuch as Adam and Eve had a choice to make, you and I have a choice to make as well. What will we do with truth? What will we do with the consequences of sin that now reside on us because of Adam and Eve's sin? What will we do with the fact that we are accountable to our Creator? But over all of that, the overarching truth that we cannot lose sight of is this. God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. And in that, we ought to have great hope. And in that, we have great opportunity. In Ephesians, the scripture says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing to the heavenly places. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, we're reminded God put all this back together. He gave us a framework for redemption. He gave us the possibility of eternal life. 
because blessing was always at the root of his agenda for his creation. So, let's move on and look at this. Well, who is it that God has promised to bless in this psalm of wisdom? Who is it that can anticipate the blessings of God if they choose the right path? Well, notice this. The first thing we see is this. In order to get those blessings, we've got to be separated from the world. Look in verse 1 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Right? This is someone who is choosing the correct path. And this is a path that is separated from worldliness. Now, I'm going to spend a large portion of my time that I have here this morning here because I believe that this is an area in which the American church in this generation needs to do some deep thinking. I believe that one of the reasons we are facing some of the dilemmas that we're facing in our culture, in our homes, in our churches, in our public reputation, and in our impact for the gospel is because the American church, rather than living a life that is separate from the world, is spending their time trying to see how close to the world we can get and still be okay with God. I'm not trying to be legalistic this morning, but I think it's time that we be reminded that God is holy and he calls us to holiness as well. A holiness that is public, but a public holiness is a holiness that begins in private. And we are seeing a lot of failures today in our public reputation. And those are tragic. If you've been reading the news and you saw the Southern Baptist thing and you see scandals in various churches and so forth and individuals who call themselves Christians and individuals who are even in ministry and you see all these things, it can be discouraging. But here's the reality. Public failures are the fruit of a private problem. And the private problem is when we don't thirst after God, we don't love Him, we don't listen to Him, and our public sins are often rooted in a loss of personal and private holiness that we need to be aware of and we need to be careful about. And that's kind of where I want to park a little bit because we see this structure, we see this plan. And God, in His infinite wisdom and in His profound appreciation for truth, is saying, here, let me explain this to you. Let me, let me explain it to you. Let me break it down, all right? And He shows three progressive steps that He warns us about in this very first verse, in this very first chapter, in this book that is absolutely filled with wisdom. He says, here's the first thing. Watch out for casual influence. And casual influence is what we listen to. We need to be aware of that which is filling our mind through our senses. I used to say this to, to my students. Even when I was teaching high school, I would say the active mind is the questioning mind. And the question mind, questioning mind is always saying, who, what, where, why, how, to what extent. We're asking these different questions that make sure that we're comprehending the truth fully. God wants us to comprehend him fully, and we need to be asking questions about everything that enters our mind. The Bible calls us to walk circumspectly. What does walk circumspectly mean? Well, the idea of circumference means, look around. in other words, the Bible says, look around while you're walking, will you? Look around. 
Pay attention. The Bible tells us that, 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 that we ought to be, be, be very, very careful about having discernment. And that when we discern something, that we ought to respond to it. Flee, run away from, mortify. These are real proactive words that God uses whenever we see something that's wrong or evil or wicked in our presence. In other words, it's not embrace, it's not celebrate, it's not enjoy, but rather it's do something about it. And I believe that one of the reasons why many of us are stumbling so hard is because we are not aware of the casual influences that are reprogramming the way that we're thinking. And in doing so, we endanger ourselves and we lose the blessings of God. Let me be specific. Social media, the mainstream media, our educational system, the entertainment industry, our closest friends, our culture's general milieu, our heroes. Are we filtering? Are we considering? Are we thinking about and asking questions of the messages we get from these portals. And I'm thinking too often we don't. And as a result, we blend in with the world. We really don't think that much different from the world. Oh, we've got the Jesus part that, you know, every once in a while we can activate if we need to. We can do the Jesus talk. We show up to church every so often whenever it's convenient. But when it comes right down to it, too many of us who bear the name of Christ act like we don't. We have developed a dichotomous living that says, you know, to survive, I can blend in. To be comfortable. To be happy to be successful, to be influential. I can walk as close to the line as I possibly can, and then we add to it the lie that besides God's forgiving, we walk in grace. I have salvation, right? I'm adopted. And so in what is one of the most, in, uh, most, most um, to me, it is, is one of the most insulting things we can do to God is we throw his goodness and his grace up as if we deserve to be able to live any way we want to without consequence. And it's offensive to God, and it's dangerous for us, and the consequences are real. Well, my dad has to love me, so I can just treat him like garbage. You wouldn't be a very good son or daughter if you said that, correct? And yet we often have that same response to God. Say, so, well, you're sounding a little legalistic, Dan. And you know what? I think we were over-afraid of that word. And maybe we're under-afraid of the idea of disobeying God, of offending His holiness, of walking in sin. We can get to the point where sin has become so commonplace that it no longer even bugs us. I was talking nobody in this church because I've talked to a lot of people. I want to make sure... Everybody understands. If you say, oh, he's talking about, I'm not talking about you, all right? I'm talking about somebody outside his church. But I had a conversation with him not long ago, and it was on the issue of pornography. And here's what this young man said to me. He said, I have fought this addiction so long that if I'm to be perfectly honest with you, it doesn't even bother me anymore. I fought it and lost, fought it and lost, fought it and lost, fought it and lost, and at this point, I'm so tired of fighting. I don't even think about it anymore. I just do it. 
That is Satan's strategy. He wants us to become so desensitized that we can sin without thought. But I want you to understand, so much of that mentality comes at our invitation. Because another word for thought is muse. You ever think about the idea that, that you, you know, whenever somebody is, is talking philosophy or whatever, we say, well, I was musing the other day. Well, what does musing mean? It means I was thinking. I was considering. I was contemplating. Right? Do you know that the word ah, when it's used as a prefix, means not or without? So the idea of amuse means without thought. Now, i got to tell you, there's some times where my brain just gets so tired, I, I need to check out. In fact, I already have an appointment to check out soon. I like cheese. I really like cheese. And the cheese I really like comes in the form of blockbuster summer movies about dinosaurs. So I have not yet seen Jurassic Park. Don't spoil it for me. I know it's a horrible movie. I know it's going to be a horrible movie before I get there. It's over the top. It's ridiculous. Yes, all right? And I have every intention of taking two hours off and enjoy T-Rexes. I'm not saying that we have to be thinking deep philosophical treatises in our brains 24-7. But we need to be careful about what we're allowing to just casually enter our minds constantly. I had a shocking experience this weekend. Some of you are going to think, oh, well, Dan, you're just super naive. And okay, then I'm going to, I'm going to plead guilty to that and, and thank God for it, quite frankly, after what I experienced. But I, I listen to, to like a lot of podcasts or news or whatever on, on my phone. because I have a Sirius radio app and Spotify, you know, so I can listen to those. So uh, a week ago, not last week, but the week before that, uh, some friends of ours gave us a place on the beach to stay. They own a place, and it wasn't on the beach, but it was near the beach. So my wife is a real beach person. I'm not, but so I was trying to get my steps in. So put my phone on, put my ears on, and I'm walking, listening to Sirius, and I stick it in my pant pocket. Have you ever, you ever accidentally call somebody from your pocket? <laughs> I do that all the time. I've done it to some of you, you know. Well, something different happened this time because I had it in my, my pocket, and I'm doing my steps and, and listening, and all of a sudden, I'm telling you, I started hearing language and not really music, but kind of like music in my head that I have. I mean, it was anti-woman. It was violent. It was sexual. It was horrific. And I've, I've quite frankly never heard anything quite like that. So I'm like, what did it happen? Did I just get demon possessed? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really confused for a moment because one minute I'm listening to the news and the next minute, whoa, what is going on here? And, and so after a couple of you know, seconds, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa what's going on here? I reach in and pull out my phone and something happened and I switched from my serious news station to urban rap. Urban rap. All right. So I got my first dose. Not impressed. I was, as, as I'm, as I, I'm, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to get back to where I'm supposed to be, my heart broke. Because, you know, I've heard that same rhythm and I've heard enough of it while I'm pumping gas and somebody drives up. Or I'm sitting at a stoplight and you can hear it three cars over. This is a steady diet for a lot of people. 
And, and it's a steady diet for people in this room and people who have children who live in this room. And here's, here, here's the reality. We ought not be, we're asking the wrong questions in this culture. What possesses someone to live a life so separate from compassion and love and concern that they would pick up a gun and walk in and kill 19 children? Uh, what possesses someone to go out and be a serial rapist, to abuse children, to be so promiscuous that they father multiple kids by multiple women with no conscience and no participation in rearing those kids. What, why? It's a seared conscience. It's a conscience that has become so used to messages of evil that it no longer matters. Pornography will do that to you. But so will wrong music. Unless, ladies, excuse me for just a moment. I know I'm getting really specific. Will you bear with me? And here's, here's my idea. I, I say this to my kids all the time in, in my life group. I say, I'm poking you in the brain. I may be wrong, but that's okay. Poke me back. This is part of growing. But pray about it. Listen to the Holy Spirit and let's look at Scripture. So ladies, let me, ask, let me just point this out to you. Okay? It's really easy to get upset with a husband who struggles with pornography for that area. And if you're watching Magic Mike and reading Fifty Shades of Grey, it's still porn. It's just a different kind of porn. All right? It's still wrong. You say, wow, that's really pointed. Yes, it is, because I'm afraid that even in our gospel preaching churches, we have become used to this dichotomous life that says, yeah, well, that's my God side. And yeah, I want to do better, but this is my reality. And this is who I am at home. And this is where I spend. And this is where I dwell. And the man who is wise, who experiences the blessings of God, says, I won't even listen to it. It's not entertainment. And if I'm going to check out, I'm not going to check out to the extent that I fill my mind with things that I know dishonors God and his sacrifice for me. Now, I may have hit you right between the eyes, and I may not have, but I guarantee you, because I did it this week, there are things in my life that are entering my heart because I am not careful enough about how I screen my senses. And whether it is my preoccupation with Twitter or whether it is Netflix on a Friday night when I'm bored or whether it is things that I just allow myself to dwell on, too much of my thoughts are unworthy of the God who loved me. He's not looking to pound me. He's looking to protect me. And when I listen, I'm called to a higher standard. And yes, part of that higher standard is purity, is screening. It is turning off something. Because when we listen, it may feel casual, but it leads us to the next step. And that is we think about it. We contemplate it. And when that happens, it's corrosive. It's corrosive. How does the influence get revealed? 
starts slipping out of our face. We start saying things. We start planning things. We start being silent because, hey, you know what? (laughs) In my own heart, I know I'm doing that too, so I'm not going to judge you because I don't want to be judged. And our identity, who we want to be liked by, who we want to be popular with, in our desire for success, in our emotions. You say, what, how, how, how do we know emotionally where we're at? I, I, I tell you, one indicator is this. What is it that makes you laugh, and what is it that makes you cry? And when you can answer those questions really honestly, it'll tell you a whole lot about the condition of your heart. What is likely to make you cry, and what is likely to make you laugh? What is it that you snicker at? What's the first joke that you want to tell or the kind of joke that you're drawn toward? It's very, very convicting. In our priorities, how do we spend our money? How do we invest our time? These are, these are key factors. And it is gradual because it eventually corrodes. I used to live in Florida, and uh, I had a, a little separate tool shed. It was like a little garage that's on the back of my house. I had a garage door. But my wife was always afraid we were, this is going to be the big hurricane. This is going to be the big hurricane. This is going to be the big hurricane. Me, I'm from the Midwest. I, didn't ever, I never experienced a full-blown hurricane in, at our community. So I was always like, playing down, playing down. And she's like, oh, no, hurricane's coming. We've got to batten down the hatches. We've got to put the wood up and so forth. And she was particularly worried. We had a pool. And she was always worried about stuff blowing from the, the pool furniture. So she'd throw the pool furniture into the pool. That was what you do in Florida. You put the pool furniture in the pool when the storm comes. But we also had this big box of or a big bucket of chlorine tablets because you'd put them in the little float thing and it would keep the water right. So I didn't know it, but she took that bucket of chlorine tablets and put it in my shop. But in the process of moving it, the lid came off. So I didn't really pay any attention to it. I couldn't find my chlorine tablets, so I went and bought some new chlorine tablets and used them after the hurricane had passed. And I'm not really a shop kind of guy anyway, so I didn't go into the shop for like two months. When I went into my shop, everything was covered with corrosion, rust, every tool, every power tool, all the window frames, everything was just covered with rust. And here's what had happened. Those chlorine tablets in that hot humidity had emitted all these chlorine gas, and everything that was metal was corroded. And it had been doing that for two months. And to this day, it's been 30 years, and I still bring it up to my wife, particularly when I want to buy a new tool. Well, I used to have this tool until the unfortunate hurricane. You know the hurricane that cost me thousands of dollars in damage but never even blew off a palm frond? You know that one? You know. So it has been good for me. I've used it over the years. Um, but, but the reality is, I didn't know. It was silent. But it was effective. And it really didn't take a long time to really mess some things up. And the reality is when we toy with sin, it'll mess you up and you won't even know it until one day you look into the mirror of a holy God and say, how did I get this way? How did I step out on my wife? How did I say that to my children? How did I get into this position at work? How did these things happen? I don't even know. Well, it started with listening. And then it started with thinking about it. And then the third thing that happens is you'll join in. And that's the collusive influence. 
We've joined in with the world at an alarming rate. We mock the values that made us who we are at the expense of the next generation. We are caring more about being accepted, about not being ostracized or overlooked, not being looked down upon, rather than being courageous and principled and resolute, being willing to stand up for what we believe, which ought to be about truth. We're selling out what can only be earned by character and bestowed by God, and we're selling it out for baubles and trinkets, compliments and companionship. We upon the sacrifice of our Savior and the martyrs who went before us so that we don't get overlooked for a promotion or we can have a few extra bucks in our own pocket so that no one laughs at us or makes us feel uncomfortable or dismisses us as out of touch or irrelevant. In a world of tawdry temptations and insane definitions and confusing priorities and violent responses and unkind reactions and cheap thrills and vacuous thinking and weak need acquiescence and spineless capitulation, self-conscious silence and selfish protectionism and fearful denials and misplaced priorities, maybe it's time that this generation of believers take a stand. Don't join in. Walk away. Speak up. Straighten our backbones. Step in in defense of others. Take our position as Christ followers without apology by not giving in, making a difference, sacrificing, and in return, God will bless us. God will make us salt and light. God will give us influence. God will draw others to him. We will stand in contrast to those who capitulate before Satan's lies when we choose wisely. So when is the last time? When is the last time? You spoke up for truth. When is the last time you said, no, not going to do that? When is the last time you said, turning that off? When is the last time you walked out? When is the last time you said, guys, you know what? I'm taking a break here. When was the last time that your faith in truth and Christ and God and your love for him and your acknowledgement of the sacrifice that he made caused you to take a stand for holiness and righteousness? You say, but I feel like a hypocrite. And Satan wants you to feel like a hypocrite. You know why? Because we are. But that's not an excuse for doing nothing. You won't get it right every time, but you'll get it right some of the time. You won't live a perfect sinless life. I sure wished we could, and I'd love to preach that to you, but I'd be preaching a lie. But I can tell you this, if you follow Christ day by day, moment by moment, fill your heart with his word and trust in him, there'll be days or times every day when you can choose the right path. You can quit listening to the wrong message. You, cannot, you, you don't have to join in. You don't have to participate. You don't have to be silent. You can make a difference. That's the way to God's blessing. And maybe, maybe if we did that, we'd have revival in this nation. We would change the gospel composition of our communities. And I want you to understand this. We can talk politics all day long. You can let whoever you want to, you know, next election. We can get all agitated all the time on social media about what's going on in Washington. But until we have revival in our hearts and in our homes, this country is going straight to hell. The hope is not in Washington. The hope is at your address and my address. The hope is when we open our word, our Bible, and listen to it. Which is the second point. Look what he says in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. I stood, I, I, Several months ago I gave the illustration. I, I, I said, you know, the word meditate actually comes from the word ruminate. 
Actually, the funny thing is I, I gave that illustration, you know, how the old cow will burp up its food and it goes through different stomachs. I explained all that. And some, one of our ladies called the office the next week and was really upset because I mentioned that. She felt like it was inappropriate for a pastor to be talking about digestion or, or whatever and actually demanded that the elders know that I should be fired. <laughs> and uh, what she didn't know was that the woman who answered the phone that day was my wife. <laughs> So, so, and she said, yes, yes, I agree. We, 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 that guy needs to go. <laughs> and then she got like, guess what? You know, she, she, she was happy to tell me about all this. But <laughs> I'm not trying to be crude, okay? But the reality is there is this image in Scripture that is really part of it. And, and the issue is that when you know the Word of God, God brings it back up to your mind. He brings it back up. He wants you to think about it. That's why I'm so thankful my parents pounded that into me. It was so interesting. I was talking to one of, my, or, or, or one of our guys in the, in the first service. He stopped me out in the parking lot, or, or stopped me out in the lobby. And I'd forgotten the story, but he grew up in my church in West Palm Beach. You know, years ago, in the 90s, 80s and 90s. And he said, I used to go to Awana's. I lived in Royal Palm. And he said, I used to go to Awana's. And you know what they did? They made me memorize those scriptures all the time. And he said, and he had his two little boys there. And he said, you know what I'm doing now? I'm living those scriptures for my son. He said, people don't understand how important it is to fill your mind with scripture when you're little like that. And I'd forgotten that story. But I got to tell you, when we do this in kid life and we have your kids memorize scriptures and you listen to that verse for the 37th time and they're still not getting it or whatever, you're investing in their future. That's a good thing. The Bible says, stay soaked in the word of God. Stay soaked in the truth. Because when you know that, then you can know the right path. When you know the word of God, then you sense whenever you're falling short. And you're able to choose wisely those things which will bring the blessings of God. You're equipping your children. You're equipping yourself for a life of blessing when you are near and in the word of God. And here's the third thing. Look what he says in verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This idea of being near the water is so important and it's so cool because here's the thing. You know, Bible days and all this, have you ever been to Israel? There's not really that many rivers, right? It's very, very desert. You know where the rivers are in the Middle East and in Israel in particular? They're underneath. They're underneath. They're subterranean. And so you, you can find trees that have their roots deep, 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 deep down in the sand, deep, deep down in the rocks and the dirt until they find an underground string. And then you got this beautiful tree <laughs> that's getting... And, and, and here, here's the reality. you got to find the water. You're not going to find the water of truth on Netflix. You're not going to find it on the Drudge Report and Fox News. You're not going to find it on CNN and MSNBC you got to dig deep for it, and you got to find it in the Word of God. And by the way, you understand this, that in Scripture, water is almost always a reference to the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that makes the Word of God come live in your heart and in your life. The Christian who wants to produce fruit, the Christian who flourishes spiritually, who has a testimony by their brilliant leaves, is a person who has dug down deep to that hidden stream, the springs of the vibrant truth of the Word of God. What you do with truth will determine what God does with you. What you do with the Bible will determine what God does with you. Get deep in it, learn it, and live it. The other thing is the proximity of that. Where do you find a tree? Well, if you see a tree, you know there's water somewhere. 
It may be below the surface. It may be next to a stream. It may be around a pond or a lake. But you can bet if there's a tree, there's water somewhere because they got to have it to live. And if we're to flourish spiritually, we need to be in proximity with the things that help us grow. When was the last time you made studying the Scripture a priority? Are you faithfully engaging with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God for your good and God's glory? Let me just pause here again. I'm poking a lot today. Bear with me, okay? But part of what God wants us to do is to gather as a church. He wants us to gather as a church. And I, and I want to say, you know, I'm, I know I'm preaching in the choir to many of you. And to those of you who are watching online, God bless you. Maybe you're on vacation, and, or maybe you're new to the area and you're kind of checking us out. And I'm, I'm glad you're doing that. And this isn't directly other than to say this. I hope at some point you move from your living room into this room because of the fellowship of believers is a good thing. But do you know that in America right now, according to the research, on a typical Sunday, and this is true of this church, about 40% of the people that call this church their church, if you ask them, where do you go to church? I think a life fellowship. About 40% are here in one of the two services or during a Bible study during the week at our church. So in other words, we're about two and a half times the size of what we have combined in both services and all of our Bible studies during the week. So in other words, if everybody were to show up here at one time, be a ton of people. We couldn't get everybody here. And here's the reality. According to the research, the average person is attending church twice a month. Twice a month. Which makes sense when you talk about the 40%, because some aren't attending twice, right? So twice a month. Here's the reality. We continue, by generation, having a more and more casual relationship with the church, with the scripture, with the fellowship of believers. And we wonder why our country is on such the wrong track, why our families are falling apart at rates approaching those who do not even know Christ, why many of us in our own homes don't even hold to and pay attention to a biblical worldview. It's because we've separated ourselves from the word and from the accountability of the body of Christ. So my challenge is choose wisely. Choose wisely. That means being a part of the body needs to be a priority. There are a lot of things we can do, a lot of things we need to do, a lot of things, but let me ask you this. What can you choose that has a greater eternal value than engaging with the word of God in the body of Christ, the forever family? I'm not trying to be legalistic. You can go to church every single day and be a lousy Christian. There are plenty of people who are very faithful in church who are not even Christians at all. Going to church does not make you a believer. However, being a strong believer means you're engaging with the body, engaging with the word, because that is the path that God has called us to do. That's how we learn Him, learn about him. That's how we know his truth. So it's not enough just to show up every other week. It's not enough to listen to a scripture passage be read aloud. It's not enough to have your little devotional verse that pops up on your phone app. If we're going to make a difference for Christ, if we're going to choose wisely, if we're going to be blessed by God, why would we give it our minimum? Wisdom cries out to us, give it your best, to enjoy God's best. 
So the last part of this passage, and I'm just going to leave that to you to study for the most part. But it says, but the ungodly or the wicked are not so. Actually, the better translation is the word ungodly because the word there is resa, and the word resa without, um, basically says there's no covenant relationship or there's no personal relationship. So when it says not so, it's resa. It means there's no reason for them to do this. The other day I was in a store and this little kid, you know, from, from a kid's perspective, all legs look like dad, <laughs> you know? And so I was standing there and I was waiting in line. So I, I feel somebody grab hold of my leg. And I'm like, what's that, you know? <laughs> my, my grandkids don't live here and my, my kids are this tall. So, you know, I, what, what, what's that? And I look down and there's this, this little kid. He just, <laughs> he just, he just content, <laughs> you know? He's got arm around me. And so I just reached down, bet him on the back and, and you know, kind of said something to him. He looks up at me, <laughs> you know, he gave, gave that look like that. And, and as soon as he did, you know, he's, he's backing up. And now I'm looking for mom because I'm ready to get arrested. You know, I'm just like, you know. Um, but, you know, and he ran over there and we laughed about it because it was sweet and innocent and, and so forth. But wh- why did he instantly know there was a problem? Because he has no relationship with me. I'm just an old guy, you know, that had, happened to have pants like his dad's or something. But I'm just, I'm just the old guy. And, and why did I jump? Because it was my grandson. I'd have rubbed his head and I'd have bought him, you know, bought him something. And, you know, it, but no. No, I have no relationship with it. It's not that I, I don't care. It's irrelevant, irrelevant, other than he's a nice kid, I'm sure. But there, there is no relationship there. And so when we read this patch, you understand, we, all, we use this expression all the time. We're all God's children. No, that's not true. We're all created in the image of God, but we're not all God's children. The Bible tells us very clearly those who reject him are sons of Satan, not sons of God, in terms of a spiritual sense. So we're not all God's children. We're all created in his image. We all have that, that potential to be adopted into his family spiritually, to be restored. But it, we're not entitled to it. It's offered to us. And we have to determine what we're going to do with that truth, that invitation. So, so you understand, this is such a tragic verse. Because, you know, when I was a boy, we would combine in the fall, whether it was wheat or beans or whatever, but the thing about it, you'd take the combine or the corn picker or whatever, and you'd, you'd go through the field, and out the back end of it would all the, the chaff, the, the refuse, the corn husks, the, anything that wasn't grain got booted out the back. And the wind would blow, and it would blow away. But we didn't keep it. We didn't rake it up. We didn't feed it to the cows because there was no nutritional value in it. It was worthless. The only thing that was of value was the grain. That was, that, was, that was it. And so when the Scripture says, you understand this, if you have no relationship with God, you're like chaff. Blow away. And there, there's no reason to expect there to be any value there. You don't value God. And God doesn't know you other than there's general knowledge, but there's no obligatory, there's no covenantal relationship that exists there. And so you'll be left to the consequences of sin and rebellion. You know, these are the things that happen when you choose foolishly, when you choose to walk away from God. So as you look at this final passage, but the Lord knows who is his. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, verse 6. The way of the ungodly, the way of the wicked, will perish. You know, that word know is such a key word. It carries the idea of choosing, and it carries the idea of caring. And so the, the chapter ends with this compassion again, this reminder of blessing. 
The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He chooses and cares for you. John chapter 10, verse 14, 15. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 19. The Lord knows who are his. Matthew 7, 23. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Which side of no are you on? And if you know Christ as your Savior, he knows you as his son. And he wants to bless you. And he wants you to feel loved. So men... Let's rise to the challenge in our homes as fathers, as husbands, as grandfathers, as brothers, as uncles, as community leaders. Young men and old men. We can be the model. Ladies, humanity calls us to living the godly life with truth in mind. And so let us choose. And let us choose wisely. Because what you do with the Bible... What you do with truth will determine what God does with you.